Hello, everyone. Welcome to the You Don't Look Like an Engineer podcast. In today's episode, we have an amazing guest joining us, Rick Crick. Rick is a director of the BGE Group and the Victoria South Australia lead at BGE. He moved to Melbourne at a young age for university, where he ended up studying engineering and has been involved in the industry for the last 30 years since then. Rick has been at BGE for over 10 years. He led the material business since its inception in 2012 at BGE and is now actually considered one of the largest materials consultancies in Australia. So in today's chat, Rick actually shares what challenges he has been through in leading this type of business and also how he never thought he was actually going to end up where he is at now. Yeah, he's also like you know, 30 years in the industry. He started off in construction, spent some time after that working as a senior manager at Ernst & Young. Um, and then he moved on, yeah, towards uh, to BGNE where he's worked on some pretty crazy global projects all around the world. Um, he did some work, you know, on the Sydney Opera House. He's worked with the Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank and the Opus and Wembley Stadium. Um, another part of his profession is that he provides um, services as an expert witness, which if our listeners don't know, it is when, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is a part of the industry where sometimes projects don't go you know as well um, either monetarily or you know things fail and that's the nature of the business but you know someone has to take accountability people go to court and expert witnesses come into play to you know do their work as an expert in the industry and inform on who did what or where yeah just provide technical expertise and help inform the decisions actually on how court cases go yeah, it's actually been such an interesting conversation. Rick has been very generous with his time and he has provided really insightful um, tips and tricks about how he started as a young professional and transitioned to being the director of a company, rapidly growing. Um, before we give away too many spoilers, without further ado, we would like to welcome Rick to the podcast. Yes, welcome, Rick. <laughs> All right, so I'm Rick Creek. I'm a director of BGE. Um, I've um, been in the construction industry now for, it's getting towards 30 years now, so it feels like that time's gone very quickly. Um, based in Melbourne, I spent about 22, 23 years living in Sydney in the middle of my career, but moved back to Melbourne at the end of last year. I guess that was a bit about back, your background, a little bit about what you're mm. passionate about. So besides, I guess, the work situation, uh, what would you say you're most passionate about? Um, well, look, I think um, like outside of work, um, for me, um, spending time with family and friends, I think, um, yeah. and I probably value that even more this year, um, moving from Sydney back to Melbourne after being in Sydney for such a long time. My wife's family's in Sydney, um, yeah. you know, moving down here, especially after two years of lockdowns and reasons not to be able to see people. Um, I think I value spending time with family, particularly my wife's family in Sydney a lot. So, yeah. and also spending time in Sydney with our friends up there too. So for me, I think in terms of passions, it's about who you spend mm. your time with and um, mm. certainly family and friends is really important to me. And, mm. and again, yeah, travelling, um, seeing other parts of the world and um, I guess getting yes. out of my comfort zone by doing that. For the family thing, sorry, I was uh, wondering, were you separated from them for the whole period of COVID? Uh, I was able to see them a little bit. So 
2020 in Victoria was pretty tough. There was a long lockdown yeah. and yeah. Um, I was in Sydney where it was relatively unaffected. And I think um, we were able to get to Victoria at the end of 2020 for Christmas. So we spent a little bit of time um, here with my family. And yeah. then I think there was an expectation that we'll probably pass the worst of it. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't quite pan out that way. So by June, July, um, I think both Sydney and Melbourne were well and truly in lockdown. So there was probably about an eight or nine month period over 2021 where I couldn't see my family at all. So all the conversations were over Zoom or, um, you know, doing it over the phone. And um, it was really then at the end of 2021, um, as things started to lift again, um, that I was able to, well, both plan the move down to Melbourne and spending some time in Victoria for that, but also a chance to see family as well. How did that impact you, like not being able to see them? I know it was really difficult for everyone, but personally... Um, oh, look, I thought it was tough. I mean, I think there was probably an initial period there when people went into lockdown uh, that was kind of almost a novelty, that people working from home didn't need to commute every day, mm. um, you know, a chance to watch, you know, things on Netflix or whatever. So there was definitely, I think, a period of trying to, you know, I guess, adapt to the, the temporary new normal. I probably found it was harder when, for example, um, you know, there were lots of cases in Victoria. You know, my parents are both in their 70s, so elderly. And, um, you know, obviously concerned about their health if they were to, to catch COVID at that time. But, um, but I kept in regular touch with them, um, spoke regularly. In fact, my mother, um, she is a mad bike rider. Like she goes on these amazing long distance bike rides. So her and my mother's since remarried and her and her, her now husband, um, they actually started riding north through outback New South Wales up to Queensland. And that was happening as the COVID situation was getting worse and worse. And once they got to Queensland and um, decided that moving back to Victoria or going back to Victoria in the middle of winter, in the middle of lockdown, didn't sound great, they made the decision, well, why don't we just live in Darwin for a period of time? So oh, wow. they got an apartment in Darwin, got jobs, um, got their car shipped up from Victoria, um, went out and bought a whole lot of clothes and things. And for the next six months, they actually lived in Darwin. So, wow. um, so yeah, I think So that, spontaneous. I know. Absolutely, spontaneous. Yeah. I know, and I mean, we were a bit shocked by it as well um, at the time, thinking, wow, that's a big decision to make, uh, you know, mm -hmm. given that there's been, you know, I guess everyone's sort of getting used to being in their own little bubble and, you know, here they are basically turning their world upside down by moving to Darwin and then... Adaptable, for very sure. Very adaptable, absolutely. <laughs> but again, you know, wow. I guess that also made it difficult to see her and, you know, her partner as well because they were obviously, you know, thousands of kilometres away in the north of the country. So I think, again, you know, just regular communication, checking in, making sure that they're okay, um, you know... It's Difficult too, I think, because they're both my parents are grandparents, so you know they miss seeing their grandchildren. So I think, as you said, it's, it's difficult for everyone, but I think it was just a matter of, um, of trying to get through that period as best as possible and just keeping up regular communication so that we could, um, mm. you know, spend time together virtually at least. Wow, yeah. I suppose um, I'm curious, um, like you know, you said you've been in the industry, been working for like 30 years almost going. Um, would you say your priorities have always been this way or like it's it's kind of waxed and waned throughout the 30 years where, you know, focus has been different? Oh, look, focus has definitely changed. Um, you know, when I started, um, you know, I did engineering at Melbourne University. I graduated in the early 90s. And at that time in Victoria, there was a pretty deep recession. You know, there was a national recession, but it was extremely difficult in Victoria and there was just no real construction going on at the time. So 
um, at that stage, it was a case of just trying to get a job wherever you could. And so for me, you know, my initial focus was get a job, get some experience, and that should then make it easier to try to kind of shape my career in the direction that I'd want to go without necessarily being clear yet what that was. Um, I ended up getting a job at CSR ReadyMix, which was um, you know, a construction materials company, um, you know, one of the larger construction materials companies in Australia at the time. And they had a graduate program that I went into. And um, so that gave me a chance to work in a few different parts of their business, which was, you know, educational. It was challenging. You know, some of those roles were essentially seven-day-a-week roles with really long hours. So so that was tough. Um, but again, you know, the real purpose was to try to learn as much as I could at that time and to try to build up some experience to make it easier then to get other jobs when they came along. And I was pretty lucky then because the opportunities I was looking for, you know, for the first 10 years or so actually came through my role in, in ReadyMix. So I got the opportunity to move to Sydney to manage a large concrete plant. Um, I moved into technical roles and business development roles and, and other types of roles within that business, which meant that I didn't need to look outside to find work opportunities. But probably at that stage too, I'd done an MBA and I was keen then to use some of the experience from the MBA um, to, you know, in more of a general management type role. And equally, I was conscious too that if I spent all my time working in the construction industry, if I ever wanted to leave or if, you know, for whatever reason, I lost my job, then it would be very difficult to get a job outside of the industry if I didn't have some experience outside of construction. So I had the opportunity to go work at EY for five years, which was... Um, very different environment. Um, it was certainly worlds away from, you know, working in demountable buildings at the back of quarries and things like that, you know, to be working in a tower in the middle of the city. Um, but a great experience too. Like I learned a lot. There were some fantastic people there. It was a really kind of um, intellectually stimulating environment to be in. But it taught me a lot about consulting too. So that, you know, when I moved to BGE and into the design consultancy world, then I had a, a pretty good appreciation of what consulting was about before I started there. So I came back to construction, uh, and that was about 10 years ago now that I did that. And really, for me, it was kind of the role that I'm in now, or the role that I sort of moved into there, was a combination of all of those different things. So, so yeah, there were certainly waxes and wanes. I mean, I think that for me, um, it's difficult, I think, to stay, you know, sort of relentlessly optimistic and positive and things like that. Like some parts of the role are challenging and, you know, sometimes as priorities change and, um, you know, I guess the level of enjoyment in your role changes and, you know, sometimes the people you report to change. Um, it can be difficult then to sort of maintain the faith. Um, and I think it's also important too that, you know, you have to take control of your own destiny. So uh, if you find that you're not getting the satisfaction or the opportunities you're looking for, then, you know, that's I guess, um, you know, a reason why you might be looking for other challenges and that might be a time where you'd be looking at, you know, whether the role you're currently in is right for you. That is, like, super good advice. Yeah, that was excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're always in control. <laughs> yeah, you are in control, but that's certainly not encouragement to you to quit your jobs tomorrow or anything by all means. <laughs> what? But you've, like, been through that time when, you know, like you are saying, when you graduated, you know, Vic uh, nationwide recession was going on and we keep hearing you know our industry is like facing lots of challenges the economy is facing challenges what do you think is the most like challenging problem the industry is facing at the moment oh look i think i mean there are some some short-term problems and some long-term ch problems and they're not unrelated so for me you know the most immediate short-term problem is that there's just not enough engineers in the construction industry in australia to deliver all the projects that we have like when you look at the scale of projects all around the country all happening at once, um, you know, other types of work that need to continue as well, 
there just aren't enough engineers currently to do it all. So for me, that's a short-term challenge that we need to contend with. But the fact is that when you look at the bigger picture, um, you know, we are in an industry that has struggled to attract a broad range of people into engineering and to stay in engineering. So I think that that's the challenge, you know, that I would probably prioritise at the moment, that we need more people looking to do engineering to fill those roles that are available. So to me, the fact that we haven't as an, en- as an industry been able to, you know, particularly women, but, you know, I think it's probably true um, that um, even where, you know, women have gone into engineering, retaining them in the engineering space or, or trying to encourage um, you know, engineers to come to Australia to take on take on roles here. That that's been a perennial challenge for us as an industry. So, to me, the bigger problem really is how we you know develop and um, you know provide opportunities to more engineers based on the work that we currently have. Understand. Um, speaking about challenges, um, just wanted to ask you, what do you think is being one of the most challenging problems that you have faced um, running the business that you're running? Oh, look, I think for me, I mean, the role that I'm in now, and this has probably been true for a while now, um, you don't have the luxury of being able to, you know, to stop, look at a problem, identify exactly what it is you need to do to solve that problem, and then work through the resolution of that in a linear way, and then solve it, you know, and essentially then say, yep, that's, that's solved, I can move on to the next problem. There will be a lot of issues all going on concurrently and they'll all be competing for your time and they'll all involve different people, different stakeholders and you're trying to, um, you know, trying to use a range of different perspectives to come up with what's the best solution at the time. So for me, I mean, what I find at the moment is that um, you can't solve problems instantly. You do need time. You need to consult with people. You need to um, get enough information to make an informed decision. Um Typically, problems too aren't necessarily a case of making a decision and then things magically happen. There's an implementation process you need to work through to actually bring people on the journey for what you're trying to do and to make them, I guess, um, you know, to, to at least bring them, allow them to understand why it is we're doing what we're doing, even if they feel challenged by that. And then making sure, I guess, that that implementation happens properly. So it's not just people telling you they're doing the right things, but actually making sure that things change. And, you know, if you're trying to do that with one issue, that's quite complex where, you know, there's, again, a number of different people you need to be consulting with on a, on a regular basis. And, you know, it was interesting, actually, while I was in lockdown and working from home and my kids were um, doing their school from home, um, you know, they made the comment to me that my job just seems to be telling different people the same thing again and again and again. And why can't I just get everybody in the same meeting and just tell them once and then that would get, save me all this time. But the reality is, though, that that's what you need to do and you need to be talking to them in terms of, you know, what their perspectives are and what their concerns might be. But ultimately, it's that consultation with people that's going to, you know, allow you to do what you're trying to do. And with one problem, that's a challenge. If you're trying to do it with multiple problems concurrently, then it becomes, you know, an even greater challenge. So... From my perspective, I guess it's that, that, you know, there's some really important things we're trying to do in, in the business. In my role, I guess it's about trying to create a better business and it really does take an investment in time and energy to make those changes that you're trying to make. So um, it's, it's about making sure you can sort of manage your time and, and maintain those relationships in a way to allow you to actually succeed in what you're trying to do. Did you at any point think that you were going to be in the role that you're doing? Like when you started studying engineering and then... You know, you, you, you just shared earlier how your first worry was actually finding a job. <laughs> and now look at you. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's, I mean, it, it's strange to me because in a way I don't feel that far removed from where I was at the start of my career. So, you know, the things that 
you know, stressed me and I found challenging at the start of my career. It doesn't seem like that long ago. I, I kind of look at my younger self, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think at the time I needed to mature and certainly, um, you know, the way that I did things then, you know, I, I do, would do things differently now. But in terms of where I am today, I mean, I never sort of set out with a particular objective in mind in terms of the role that I wanted to make. I mean, for me, I guess my main motivator has always been, you know, trying to help a business be the best it can be, trying to help the people who work within that business reach their potential, you know, striving to reach my own potential as well. Like for me, um, you know, I'm only going to get better at what I do by learning and by, you know, pushing myself and continuing to learn. And I don't see that there's a point in anyone's career where that stops. I think that's something that everyone needs to keep doing throughout their career. And the way you learn, I guess, changes too. So, you know, early on it was about trying to spend time with, you know, the older people in the industry who had learned a lot and they were able to teach me things that I needed to know. Um, you know, for me, you know, for example, issues like digital engineering or, you know, the way that we deal with diversity issues, for example, it's spending time with younger people who bring a very different perspective, but ultimately we need to be able to engage to keep, you know, motivated and within our business and that sort of thing. So to me, that's all learning. It's just learning from different people at different stages of my career. Um, as far as the position I'm in today, I mean, that was probably a little bit of a surprise at the time when I was given the opportunity to become a, a director of the business. I certainly wasn't sort of plotting to do that in any way. It was, it was a case of an opportunity presented itself. And it was one of those things too where, you know, I could probably find reasons to say no in the basis that if I mightn't have been ready for it or I might have felt that other people were more deserving. But equally, I thought, well, it's an opportunity to make some positive changes. It's an opportunity for me that gives me a chance to sort of help the business to improve and to create a better business for the people that will follow me in this role. So it's also about taking those opportunities and making sure that, um, you know, you don't squander them, you know, that you try to do the best you can for the business, not for me, but for, you know, the people who will follow me or the people who work around me to help them, as I said, achieve their potential. Wow. I, I guess multiple yeah. questions. Yeah, you guys <laughs> My main thing is like if you're um, trying to create these changes, like and a lot of them are like long term, uh, but things have sort of been working okay for the business as they are, like business as usual. How do you convince someone if you're like trying to make a change that this is going to be, you know, great? We're going to have to make this change, but like, how do you convince them in the short term to to share your? How can you vision? make them see your point of view? Yeah, <laughs> look, and, that, and that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, they will often be reasons why people don't want to change. You know, for example, they may benefit from whatever the status quo is. So, you know, for me, that's something I'm always mindful of, that, you know, what are they losing by me doing this? And how do you then engage with them in a way that they don't necessarily lose? You know, obviously, any change, they can't always be all winners. You know, some decisions are very difficult and people are disadvantaged by that. But nonetheless, you do need to engage with them. And I think, to me... It's having authentic, open communication, like I think that trying to, to, to drive change without trust being established between yourself and whoever it is that you're sort of working, working with, um, it's very difficult then to have them engage with what you're trying to do and, and see the reasons of what you're trying to do without, you know, thinking there's other motives behind it. If you're authentic in how you're presenting yourself, talking through the ideas, you know, listening to them when they're providing their feedback. And often that might mean that, you know, by them presenting feedback, it might actually mean you get a better outcome because they're bringing a different perspective. So to me, it's, it's important that 
um, you know, you do have those, those genuine conversations and you do genuinely try to um, bring people on that journey with you. I think that the risk you can run is often if you're trying to do it by edict and say, well, as of now, you're no longer able to do this or you must do that or whatever, then I think, you know, when they're talking to you, they may well be saying, yep, that's fine, no problem. When they're talking to other people, that's where all the issues arise because what they're telling other people isn't what they're telling you. So um, so that can be difficult because, you know, like, for example, as I said, I moved to Melbourne at the end of last year into an office that, um, you know, I knew a few people but didn't know many and a lot of people wouldn't have really known who I was at that time. And it was a time where we needed to sort of implement some pretty quick changes just with changes in personnel and things that were going on at the time. So for me, um, you know, trying to quickly establish that level of trust, you know, trying to be open and, um, you know, I guess trying to demonstrate that I'm doing this for the good of the business and to try to help the people within that business um, over a relatively short period of time. It was was important that I, you know, really tried hard to establish that trust. If I had betrayed that trust, then I wouldn't have been able to do anything. So, I think that's where it always starts from, just open communication and, um, and and genuine listening as well because, as I said, if they feel they're being listened to, they might accept it. If they don't feel they're being listened to, it's much harder to convince people that you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, wow. Um, so with regards to trust, and I guess you just pretty much say it, but I just wanted to ask you, like, apart from communication and um, listening without judgment, um, what other skills do you think we need to sort of, like, develop that trust, especially at work because it's it's a bit harder when you're working with people and you just don't really know what does trust look like even. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think that that's a difficult thing and I think that, you know, sometimes that can be distorted by power in the sense that if you're engaging with people, you know, and like from my own perspective, you know, early on in my career, I could see things that I thought were wrong, you know, morally wrong or not best for business or whatever, but my ability to change those things was very difficult at the time you know if I had of you know made a you know a lot of noise about it if I had stood up in a meeting and said this is wrong or whatever then the reality is that you know I wouldn't have been there for much longer Um, and, and that can be a really difficult thing where you can see that there's something that's happening that is wrong but you're not in a position you don't have the power necessarily to change that and so to me then it's a question you know do you take a moral stance and say well I don't want to be a part of this this is wrong Do you stay a part of that process and try to influence the result to try to at least get some of what you think would be a better outcome for people? Um, Or do you, um, you know, essentially just go with the flow and, you know, just say, well, I'm not going to rock the boat here. I don't want to create problems for anybody. So I'll just blindly accept whatever the outcome is here. And to me, that, that can be a difficult thing. And I think that often what can happen in that situation is that you do speak up and you do say, look, I don't believe what you're doing here is the right thing to do. And it can become very personal very quickly that, you know, they're saying, well, you're a troublemaker, you know, you're not being a team player, you know, you're, you're not buying into what we're trying to do here or whatever. And that can be a confronting situation to be in, again, if you don't have, you know, a sense that you've got any power to, you know, to, to you know, kind of influence um, what happens from that point on. And, you know, I've been in that situation early in my career where you feel like you're, um, you know, you're speaking up, you're trying to do the right thing by people, but you feel like you're not being listened to, you feel like that you're, you know, essentially being disenfranchised or that, you know, it becomes about you as an individual rather than about what you're trying to say. And that, that's a really tough thing to deal with. Um, I guess the way I deal with that is, you know, remember that, that, you know, I think that I'm in a situation now where I can make decisions and I can, um, you know, have more influence, but it is important too that I'm, you know, making sure that, I understand 
what other points of view might be out there and you know what judgments might people be passing about what we're trying to do um, in terms of the, the values of our business or um, you know the way we go about making decisions and um, not forgetting I guess what it was like to be in their shoes early on in, in my career so you know for me I think how to do it you know I think integrity counts for a lot. Um, I think that, you know, again, being open, I think you kind of have to sometimes pick your battles. You know, some things are definitely worth fighting for and absolutely you should do everything you possibly can. If you see something that, you know, would be, you know, grievously wrong for a business to do in terms of your values or the business's values or whatever, then, you know, sometimes you have to take a stand and you have to do that in a respectful way. Um, but sometimes it's more a case of, look, well, I'm not going to win this battle I need to be a part of this process to make sure that, you know, either I, I minimise the, 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 the negative things that could happen from this or potentially um, I'm in a position um, in future where I can have a more positive result and po more positive outcome. Because often these things, it's about culture and culture takes a long time to change. So you're not going to be able to do that overnight. But what you can do, I guess, is to become trusted, to become a part of the decision-making process, process. And then over time, potentially you can have a much bigger influence over the way things are done and eventually you kind of end up where you want to be. It's just difficult mm -hmm. to do that all in one go. So I'm not sure if that answers the question, but, um, but <laughs> integrity is certainly mm -hmm. at the heart of that. And, and again, you know, it's, it's those sort of trusted relationships mm -hmm. and making sure that they stay important. I can help but to think about uh, gender and, well, diversity and inclusion and all the gender stuff um, when you talked about that. Um, so I first want to know, What drove you to be involved in the Diversity and Inclusion Committee at BGE? Um, and then we can elaborate on the questions that I have. Yeah. So, look, it's, I guess that's a long journey for me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as I said, you know, I graduated from university nearly 30 years ago and the industry itself was very different then to what it is today. Um, you know, it was certainly a male-dominated industry. You know, there were very few female graduates in my year at university. Um There was certainly, I think, you know, what I would call more than even a male culture, I think it was very much a masculine culture in construction at the time. So to give you an example of that, one of the early jobs I did when I first graduated, um, you know, there was a fairly healthy disdain, I think, within that business for people who'd come out of university. It was very much seen as, um, you know, a working class kind of industry. And so if you came out with a degree, then that probably meant that you needed to be brought down a peg or two. And that was an expression I heard used a few times. And one of the things that they did as part of induction process into their business was you had to spend a few days working out um, in their yard, you know, where they had construction equipment and things, plant, etc., that had been used for construction that needed to be cleaned. And, you know, my job at that time over those couple of days was to clean it. And the way you typically did that was with a hammer and you would sort of whack metal, steel, you know, beams and things like that with a hammer to knock off concrete and, and um, you know, then scrape it off, which you can imagine, you know, banging you know, a steel beam with a metal hammer was extremely loud. So, you know, the first thing I did was ask for some earplugs as PPE and I got laughed at, you know, basically the message to me at the time was that, you know, only wimps would want to use earplugs or whatever and none of the guys out there use earplugs. So, you know, I need to toughen up. And, you know, mind you, you know, all of these guys were, you know, probably in their 40s and 50s and were pretty much already deaf. So clearly it was having an impact. But that was, you know, essentially what you had to do to prove yourself. You know, that, that was the kind of environment that some parts of the industry at that time were still like. So for me, I think that's changed and I think that that's changed for the better. Um, so I guess part of my motivations has been that, 
you know, I think as an industry, we needed to move away from that kind of culture to one that was much more inclusive, you know, where people, you know, from a range of different backgrounds, from, you know, whether it be based on their ethnicity, whether it be based on gender, whether it be based on sexuality, whether it be based on whether they had a degree or not, um, that, you know, people could feel that there was a place for them within the construction industry. And I think we're getting somewhere there, but there's still a long way to go. Um, you know, for me, I guess something else I observed through my 20s, uh, a lot of the friends that I had at the time, particularly female friends, were, you know, really successful really early in their career. So, you know, some of them, had, you know, by the time they were in their late 20s, you know, turning 30, had already moved to senior positions within their businesses and, you know, were doing incredibly well. They were earning more money than anybody else I knew. They had amazing apartments and things like that that they were living in. And, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, well, they're CEOs of the future, like these guys are superstars, like just what they've been able to achieve so early in their career. But then I noticed in the few years after that, that um, more and more of them, and for reasons, there was no sort of conscious decisions or anything like that, but the opportunities started to dry up for them so that, um, you know, to the point where, you know, some of them left their career and went off and did something completely different. Some stopped working and went off and had families. Others, um, you know, sort of stuck at it for a while, but they kind of reached a plateau and they couldn't go any further. And it wasn't as if they were sort of going into their, their boss's office and saying, you know, I'm just letting you know, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have children, my career is going to be less important to me, so I don't need any more opportunities. It was almost the presumption at that time that, well, you know, you've kind of gone far enough and I'm sure your priorities are about to change and, you know, overtly or covertly decisions were being made that were affecting their opportunities in their careers. So, you know, as I said, in my 20s, I sort of saw some incredibly successful, intelligent, um, you know, really, um, uh, you know, driven women achieving amazing things in their career. But by the time they were in their 30s and, you know, turning 40, then often, you know, their career essentially had, had plateaued. So seeing that and wondering why that was the case, um, you know, certainly that troubled me at the time. And I wondered what they could have achieved if they had have had more opportunities or if there hadn't have been assumptions being made about who they were or what was what was increasingly important to them. And uh, as I said, you know, in an industry where we don't have, um, you know, a huge representation of females, um, which I, you know, I absolutely think that part of, you know, the whole diversity story is about what's good for, for women, what's good for minority groups, etc. But for me, it's also important what's good for men as well. And I look at, you know, from a, a male's perspective, um, you know, you know, we typically have more mental health issues. We certainly have issues around sort of, um, you know, communication with friends and with others or whatever and being able to open up about problems. You know, certainly issues such as suicide, for example, a much bigger um, proportion of males are affected by that than females. So I think that that's tied to it as well, that I think it's, it's not only good for uh, women and for the minorities to have a more diverse workplace, I think it's also good for men to have a more diverse workplace as well, like in terms of the culture that they're a part of. Um, in terms of their ability to, you know, to form the relationships that they need to help them navigate through their careers, the chance to open up and have, you know, conversations about what might be troubling them. Um, you know, I saw a whole range of reasons why, as an industry, this needed to change. And um, so I think part of that, I guess, is, again, you know, the position that I'm in as a director of the company, how can I influence positive change in the business? And so for me, um, you know, being given the opportunity to, to lead a committee that's essentially responsible for trying to drive that cultural change within the business that I'm in, um, you know, to me, that's the very least I can do. You know, as I said, it's, a, it's an opportunity to use, I guess, um, some of what comes with the role that I'm in to try to drive positive change in the business. So um, to me, it's very much a responsibility to take that opportunity.
Wow. Uh, that's just so incredible. Um, one thing I'm really curious as to you personally, um, like you said, culture takes a long time to fix. So sometimes like people just get comfortable saying this is just the way it is, you know, like the, the people with the earplugs, weirdest example, by the way, like I, <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> you just accept going deaf. Um, but what is it, I suppose, if you look at yourself that made you want to be like, no, I think I have the power and it is my responsibility to affect this change rather than being like, it works. This is the way it is. Just accept it. So I think, I mean, for me, um, again, it's probably observing people around me. Like I think that, um, I mean, early on in my career, I guess, and certainly as I was, you know, kind of a teenager growing into a young adult, I kind of had a sense that, you know, I am who I am. Other people are who they are. Um, I don't need to think too deeply about whether they're getting opportunities or whether there's prejudices or anything like that at all. If I don't see it, then I don't need to worry about it. And I think it became clear to me, you know, as I became an adult and as my sort of circle of friends broadened, that I sort of came to realise, well, actually, that's not true. Like, you know, I'm in a position where I don't get judged in the same way that they do, where I get opportunities that they don't, you know, that I can see, you know, just in the way that, you know, they're interacting with people in a, in a shop or, um, you know, when we go to a you know, a pub or something, the way that they're treated compared to how I'm treated, there's clearly differences there that, you know, I can't ignore. So for me, it was firstly, I guess, understanding that I do have a role to play. Um, that this isn't their problem. This is our collective problem as a society. Um, I guess something else that sort of I learned as well, and as I said, you know, some of the friends that I had had done incredibly well for themselves early in their career, and a particular friend of mine, um, you know, she, I think by the time I when I first moved to Sydney and I met her, you know, she was already in a senior position with a, a large multinational. Um, you know, she was living in an apartment, um, you know, at Kirribilli Point, which is near where the Prime Minister lives when they're in Sydney, sort of overlooking the harbour and everything, and, um, you know, incredibly successful early on. And yet, you know, getting to know her, you know, she was a woman, uh, you know, she was a Muslim, um, you know, she was, um, you know, child of refugees that had fled, India to go to the UK and um, you know I'd have conversations with her about that that you know I would see all of those as impediments to being able to succeed in business and yet you know the way she characterized it was that you know when she went into a meeting um, you know she could sort of read the emotions and she could see things in sort of the disposition of the other people in the meeting that other people you know usually men couldn't pick up and so she was much more attuned to, you know, how things were being received and, you know, the dynamic that was going on in the room at the time. So she was better able to sort of, you know, either through empathy or through sort of reading those subtle signs to, to get better outcomes in those discussions by being more attuned to that. And, um, you know, certainly I think that that's a sort of, you know, a, a trait that I think would be more common among women than it would be among men. Um, I also remember talking to her about, you know, her family, as I said, you know, they fled India at the time of the um, petition in in the late 40s, fled to the UK, essentially started a new life for themselves in the UK at that time, had sort of, you know, built a successful life for themselves and given her, you know, a successful um, upbringing, you know, in, in a city that they didn't really know beforehand. And, um, you know, she'd gone back to India and she'd seen what her family had gone through to sort of, you know, you know, to leave their life that they had there uprooted essentially overnight and then sort of essentially having to set up a new life in a new country. And, you know, in, in her eyes, that was very much, I guess, um, you know, a sign of resilience um, that, you know, she'd been able to, you know, kind of, you know, as the child of, of two such brave people who had been able to do that and to give her the upbringing that, you know, that she needed to succeed. So, again, certainly that sense of resilience was really important to her. 
and even you know in terms of her faith um you know she she was raised and um you know lived um uh as a muslim and she saw that as kind of you know sanctuary that she could kind of retreat into so when she was stressed or whatever then you know she kind of had her faith to sort of sustain her and give her some i guess some um some sanctuary from uh, you know some of the stresses from the outside world so you know what i saw as impediments to her being able to succeed in her life you know she saw as strengths you know that were the things mm. that kind of made her who she is and really for her it was about you know finding for her the right environment to be able to capitalize on those strengths to help her to succeed so you know for me that was really important too that you know it's she's not unique you know everyone out there has you know their particular strengths and things that they you know bring with them that would you know not only benefit them in terms of their ability to perform in whatever job they're in but would obviously benefit the businesses that they're a part of as well and so ultimately um you know my view is that, you know as a business we need to create a culture where they can thrive they can bring those strengths and those strengths are valued to you know to to capitalize on those to make us a better business and to allow them to again allow them to achieve their potential so you know certainly that lesson i learned from her was really important to me um to actually understand that um it's not just a sort of a dichotomy here of you know do you have an advantage or a disadvantage it's how you create a culture where those differences become you know real strengths for them as an individual and for us as a business <laughs> yeah That's incredible. I first oh, I want to know. <laughs> I'm very <really> charging. <laughs> But also was she one of your mentors or were you just friends? That's that's amazing that you were able to pick up on those lessons like sorry, on those skills and and sort of like appreciate how she she saw herself and her potential and yeah, that's incredible. Oh, look and you know, she certainly was someone who taught me a lot. Um and you know i think certainly i mean she was primarily a friend and you know certainly value that friendship um yeah i will say unfortunately um it's not all good news in that she got married uh and married an american she actually married in in london where she she grew up and then she moved to america and unfortunately um she got a job in new york and she happened to be in the world trade center the morning of september no. 11 So so yeah so that's part of it for me too that you know I oh, think no. an amazing story you know tragic ending but you know I certainly see you know her story is inspirational for me and that's why so you know sorry, I like yeah. talking about it too in the sense that you know I think there's lessons in that for others as well Wow oh, I'm so sorry Rick yeah I oh, look you know I think um as I said you know it was certainly difficult at the time you know I met her husband afterwards and you know he was obviously devastated as you know thousands of people were i guess after that event but you know to me it's also about the good that can come from that too by sharing those stories yeah. and making sure that we don't forget who these people were well it's a legacy that they have left and yeah absolutely wow. thank you for sharing that story with us and definitely it's contributing with this good conversation that we're having here that's amazing thank you my pleasure I don't know how to recover from that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to bring the news down. No, no, no. It's it, it it's actually so, it's one of those it, stories that yeah. lets you think and you're like, wow, like because I feel like we we meet a lot of people in that we don't understand how much they can bring in our life or how powerful just meeting them can be for us. And and I think that's beautiful that you shared that and obviously I am a religious person, I'm Catholic and I would say that I don't we pretty much don't understand how like 
God's time is completely different from us. So, mm. yeah, it's, Look, and what I'd say too, and that's a really important point for me, sometimes the people that do have a really meaningful impact, um, you don't know them for long. They, they're not necessarily close. Mm. It's just sometimes they happen yeah. to be in the right place at the right time to teach you something. Yeah. And I guess it's about you being open to that lesson when it comes. To that lesson. Yes, totally. I agree with you. As a male ally for females in the industry, um, I want to know how you approach the conversation about gender disparity in engineering to sort of like promote change. Hmm. Because as you mentioned before earlier, when, when we talk about diversity in engineering, a lot of people think that it's a matter of giving up on something, right? or that they are not going to benefit from it, or it's threatening. Mm. So I just want to know My how to make the most out of that conversation. Yes, your view on it. <laughs> yeah, so look, and that's quite a common concern I've heard raised. I think for me, you know, I mean, to me, I guess, you know, at the heart of it, the, the, the starting point really in all of this is, you know, really about, you know, equity, you know, for all. You know, as I said, I think as an industry, we need to be, um, a broader church in terms of, you know, the people who are attracted and come and work in our industry. So um, to me, this is, you know, it's, it's a challenge that we need to overcome. I think um, clearly there's, you know, a justice element to that, that, you know, if, if, if someone's prepared to dedicate their lives to studying and to becoming an engineer and to, you know, to, to seek out opportunities to succeed in that field, then we have to give them the opportunity to succeed. So the fact that, you know, there's either, you know, prejudices or there's structural impediments to people being able to achieve that, we, we have to overcome it. You know, I guess that's, that's mm. you know, a pretty simple view, I think, but I think it's a really important one. I've heard some people say, well, what about me? Um, you know, I'm a, you know, straight mm. white guy, so, you know, why don't I get benefits? Why am I the one who misses out here? And to me, you know, the first thing I would say to that is, firstly, you don't need to miss out. Like, I don't think that engineering, like any other field, is a zero-sum game where every opportunity that you give to somebody must be an opportunity that you've taken away from some someone else. Like, you know, as I said, there's more than enough jobs in the industry currently for all the engineers we have and more. So, you know, to mm -hmm. me, the key isn't about trying to, um, you know, to apportion out the roles to try to overcome that that gender issue it's really more a case of well how do we you know find enough engineers and train those engineers up to take on those different opportunities that are out there so you know if, if your view on that is that we'll know because I'm going to lose out and they're going to gain then I don't think you really understand what's really currently going on in the industry um, in general and secondly as I said you know for me you know the industry for most men, I think, if it was to be, you know, essentially what it used to be in terms of a very male-dominated, very, you know, um, masculine-type industry, I don't think most men would want to work in that industry either for a long period of time. Like, I think that there are some that might think that's great, you know, that's what I want to be a part of. But as I said, you know, the, the industry as it was then was in a society where, you know, as I said, you know, men didn't talk about, you know, their, their emotions, you know, there was issues around suicide, there was issues around domestic violence, you know, um, fathers were fairly uninvolved in the lives of their children, you know, weren't overly affectionate towards their children, you know, that was the kind of era where that industry sort of was a part of. And so for me, 
I don't think any guy really wants to go back to that. You know, I think that the things that we've gained through this process of, you know, a more open and more diverse society, I think, has benefited men as well as women. So, mm. you know, to me, that'd be my answer that, you know, it's not a question of what you have to lose. I think for me, it's much more a question of, you know, opportunities are going to be there. You know, if you're prepared to put the work in, you will find opportunities, you will succeed. You know, there's no one who's going to stop you from succeeding if you're prepared to challenge yourself and to learn and to make sure that you're the, you know, you, you're, you reach your own potential. But equally, if we're doing that in a culture where, you know, people are valued for their contributions, if we're in a, a culture which allows people to provide different perspectives to actually get better outcomes for the problems we're trying to solve, um, if we're about trying to keep, you know, engineering more relevant to the communities that we operate in and to keep engineering itself, I think, relevant as a profession, then all of those things will only be gained by being a more diverse and a more, um, yeah. you know, accepting and a more inclusive uh, culture. So, um, so to me, yeah, I, I would certainly say to those guys, that's what you could be a part of if you choose to engage. But if you sort of stand back, then, you know, the industry is going to leave it's you behind. It's much to lose. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that is, that is so true. Wow. It's really amazing and a breath of fresh air almost, but it sounds like you have a very keen um, understanding of people. And, you know, you mentioned that a lot of that is what you have to do day to day, you know, people management, emotional management. Is that something you've actively had to learn through like external resources or has that just come with experience throughout your career? Uh, it's very much learned, I can assure you. Um, <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, growing up, as I said, I would think of myself as, you know, when I first turned 18, I went to university when I was 17. And so moved from, you know, a relatively small, you know, country city to Melbourne. Um, and suddenly the whole world opened up there in terms of, you know, what you could do, who you could be, you know, all sorts of um, opportunities that just weren't conceived of living in the country at the time. So for me, you know, I think I recognised pretty early on that I had a lot of growing up to do. You know, I was 17. I was a relatively immature 17-year-old at the time. As I said, I probably had some fairly naive views on the way that the world worked in terms of relationships. And I probably also had a view too that, um, you know, the way that you achieve maturity is by working on yourself, you know, and sort of, you know, when you're kind of a fully formed adult human, then you can go and engage with others. And I, I've sort of came to realise pretty quickly after that that, no, the way that you mature is to actually interact with other people and you learn about yourself by essentially interacting with other people. And so, you know, through your friendships, through relationships, um, you know, through interactions with family and work colleagues, all of those things, you know, ultimately you're learning about yourself when you have those interactions. So, so to me, I think that that's where the sort of the dynamic of, of interacting with people came from, that, you know, if you want to interact with people, you have to be a good person. You know, people, you know, you want people to actually like you and to actually um, interact with you. And, you know, often in those situations as well, um, you know, you will make mistakes, you know, you will fail. And so, you know, you need to have, you know, a relationship with people where, you know, you can do that without that being just about you. It, you know, potentially is about the circumstances or it is about, um, you know, the things that you need to work on or develop to be better in future. And so, again, you know, you have to almost be able to open up um, and build trusted relationships to the point where you can fail and that's not just going to be entirely about judging you. So I think I kind of learnt that, you know, through my 20s. I think that, as I said, when I turned 20, I was fairly naive and immature, I think, and, you know, I tried to sort of make sure by the time I turned 30 that I'd sort of, you know, had some semblance of maturity about me. Um, but that's always been about, you know, trying to build 
strong relationships with people, um, you know, trying to be someone that people can trust. Um, you know, I think that the risk sometimes, particularly as you sort of move into more senior roles, is that increasingly people can tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to know. And um, if you don't have a sense of, um, you know, um, awareness or if you um, you don't expose yourself to contrary ideas, you mightn't appreciate that. You know, you think everything's rosy, but it's really not. You know, there's things going on in the background or in the shadows or whatever that you're not aware of because everyone tells you everything's fine and it's only when it's too late that you suddenly realise that that's not true. So, so I guess to me um, it's very much about, as I said, trying to to build relationships, to try to, you know, influence change and that sort of thing. But it's also about me trying to be the best person I can be as well, by having interactions with people, by learning from them, um, by getting a better sense of who I am by the interactions that I have, you know, conversations like this, you know, uh, it's great for me, I think, to learn, you know, both your perspectives, but also from my own point of view too, it's, um, you know, it's taking me out of my comfort zone, so it's something I can learn from as well. So good. Um, you mentioned as a leader, like people just tell you sort of, sort of like what you want to hear rather than, you know, what's actually going on. How do you remain connected, I suppose, with the reality, if I might put it that way? <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I think it's something you have to actively seek out. I mean, for me, as I said, moving to Melbourne, um, you know, I moved to a business into an office where the person I replaced had pretty much been there from day one. So they knew all of the people very, very well. They'd probably been involved in a lot of the interviews that recruited those people into the business. So very deep long-term connections um, with the existing team. So I couldn't replicate that, certainly not in the early stages. So for me, it was about, you know, one-on-one conversations with all the different people in the team over a period of four or five months just to get to know them and, you know, to let them guide the conversation as well. Like it wasn't about me sort of, you know, trying to reel off a, a list of the 10 most interesting things about me or anything like that, you know. Some people wanted to talk about me and who I was. Other people wanted to talk about where they'd come from. Some wanted to talk about engineering or the business or whatever. So, but for me, it was really about trying to sort of establish a connection there. And often in those discussions, you won't necessarily find out everything you need to know, but you can establish some trust there so that, you know, in future you can then have those more open discussions about where things have gone wrong. So um, so for me, that's part of it, I think, just, you know, really actively putting yourself out there to try to build those relationships so people can come to you. Um, you know, the fact is, you know, as, as you sort of alluded to there, that, you know, if I walk into a building site, with the site team or whatever, then usually people are pretty well behaved. So I kind of don't really get a sense of what's really going on on the building site. Whereas, you know, people could go back a week later or whatever and, um, you know, there's unacceptable behaviours going on or there's things that, you know, I wouldn't tolerate if I was to witness it. Mm. And if I sort of assume because I haven't seen it, it's not happening, then that's often a naive view. You know, sometimes just by being in the room, things don't happen in the way that you, um, you would accept. So... To me, it's also important that, you know, there will be people in the business who are outspoken and I think that, um, you know, it's about building relationships with them in particular because it's not about portraying confidences or anything like that, but sometimes you need to know if something is going wrong, um, that you've got some relationships within key people with, with key people in the business who can come to you and say, look, you need to know that this is happening, we need to address it. And for me, it's, it's, again, it's about, you know, really investing in those relationships to make sure that if they speak up, um, that they get heard, that they'll be, you know, that they'll be listened to, they'll be taken seriously, and that action will be taken. So I think uh, there's a combination of things I think that you need to do um, to really stay grounded. Um, you know, again, it's about actively seeking out 
you know, conversations, you know, interacting with, with a broad range of different people about being approachable, I think. Um, you know, certainly I wouldn't want people, anyone in the business that I work in or, or, you know, anyone in the industry really to feel like they couldn't come and talk to me if they had any, um, you know, concerns or any issues that they wanted to discuss. Um, you know, I'd like to try to keep that as open as possible. But, you know, you have to work at that. You can't just assume it's going to happen. Yeah, I have a question regarding. So we've we've mentioned authenticity and being, you know, um, yourself always as a as a key thing. But earlier you mentioned um, how, as a leader, obviously you wanna be liked. Did you struggle with remaining authentic to who you were and standing on you on your values and living by them when when you started to jump into a more leadership position? Just because you wanted to be liked? <laughs> um, I try not to go in with that, with that in mind. Like, I mean, obviously, you don't want to go to work and have people throwing tomatoes at you or anything like that. <laughs> but I think that if you're making decisions on the basis of well, what's going to be the most popular, you know, or what's going to make people happy, then I think that can be, um, you know, a dangerous proposition. I think that the reality is that, um, you know, I think people are looking for, leaders to lead, um, you know, to sort of paint a clear vision of where they want the business to go and how they can contribute to helping you get there and, um, you know, empowering them to, to play a key role in making sure that, um, you know, that they're also working in the same direction so that, you know, everyone's aligned to a common purpose. So, you know, I think that if you're providing that, again, if you're open, if you're trustworthy, if you're engaging with people if you're listening to their points of view if you're you know consulting with them when you're making decisions then I think that part of it becomes easier um you know I think that um you know not everyone's going to like you I, I certainly you know, I walk around the office or whatever and sort of keep score on who I think likes me and who doesn't or anything like that but I'm sure that you know some people would look at what I do and you know question and, and you know what on earth you thinking by doing that yeah. and I've had that happen before where you know particular decisions I've made, it's been pretty clear that people who worked for me at the time weren't happy with a particular decision. You know, they thought it was the wrong decision to make. And, you know, they would come and talk to me about that and, you know, often be pretty upset about it. And, you know, on one hand, you, you it's a pretty difficult conversation to have. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's kind of um, reassuring in some way that they're prepared to actually come and talk to you about that, you know, express to you personally why they don't agree with what you've just done rather than having that conversations with others or just start deciding, well, I don't want to engage at all, I'm just going to leave. So so overall, I think for me, it's about making sure that, um, that yeah, you, you know, you remain true to your values. You know, I, I, I can't be saying to people, you know, be your authentic selves if I'm not being authentic myself. Um, you know, certainly I'm not perfect and, you know, I'll make mistakes and things like that, but you aren't up to those mistakes and I think people can get over them pretty quickly. Um but, yeah, in terms of moving, you know, into more of a leadership-type role, you know, I guess in recent years, um, you know, I've always tried to, as I said, remember where I've come from, what was important to me at that time in terms of my values and not lose sight of that and, um, and making sure that, um, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to learn and, you know, decisions, you know, will be made and, you know, potentially my perspectives will change on things as, as, I, as I get older. But um, at the same time, though, it's also about making sure that, you know, I'm true to my values. I'm not, um, you know... You know, essentially putting my values behind, you know, the interests of others and things like that, if that's going to be the detriment of the business. Um, you said that there were times that people didn't agree with your decisions. Um, and I think from 
in that um, position that you have, have you ever had to have like a difficult conversation with someone was that was like in a higher position and they didn't agree with something that you wanted to do, but you thought it was sort of like the best thing for the business at the time? How did you manage that rejection or like that conversation? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's tough. I think that, um, again, it comes down to the relationships with people that you build around you. Um, you know, to give you an example of that, I um, at one point managed, um, you know, I think it was five concrete plants across Sydney at a point in time. And um, I was driving somewhere with the business of safety manager at the time and my phone rang and it was a guy who was running one of the concrete plants um, who said that he just shut the plant down because um, there was a cement tanker that was attempting to reverse in off the street and a car came flying around the corner and almost hit the cement tanker. The whole situation was dangerous. It's been a problem for ages. No one's fixing it. That's it. I'm done. I'm shutting the concrete plant down. And so I rang my boss and I said to him, I'm just letting you know that this is happening. Um, you know, he hit the roof. Um, I think his response was, you know, I'll leave the swear words out, but uh, it was on the lines of, you know, they've been producing concrete out of that plant and backing tankers into that plant for the last 40 years. Why does that suddenly a problem today? And so, you know, that was a difficult conversation to have. He was upset with me because, you know, I'd supported the guy who was working for me at the time. And, um, you know, but at the same time, I could see it was certainly a safety issue, you know, for me. Um, you know, it wouldn't be acceptable to me to, to effectively force somebody to continue with something that I knew to be unsafe. So we had a conversation about it. You know, there were a few different options that we could look at in terms of how we could overcome that and manage the risk associated with that. And, you know, it was pretty quick to put those, you know, those measures in place. And, um, you know, that was all sorted pretty quickly. So, you know, and to me, you know, I think that there was never a conversation from my boss to say, letting you know you were right, um, you know, that was the right thing to do. You know, that, that never came. Um, not that I was expecting it, but it certainly didn't come. But overall, I think it's um, also a case where, you know, sometimes you do need to stand up for what's right. And that will be difficult and, you know, you will aff feel affronted and, you know, you might feel small in that situation. But at the same time, it's also about, you know, what you can live with. And certainly, you know, the guy that made that call initially, you know, he spoke to me, I think, a year later and said that, you know, he, he won't forget that decision. You know, he thought that was really important that I stood up for him at that time, and I did. Um, so, you know, to me, that was gratifying, you know, that I knew I'd done the right thing, as difficult as that conversation was with my boss, but um, it was done for the right reasons. So I think that that's, that's important, that, you know, you really, again, have to understand, well, what are the things that you really do need to stand up for, you know, whether it be about safety okay. or whether it be about people or whatever, some things you do need to stand up for. Um, do it in a respectful way, um, but um, you can't let the fear of having that difficult conversation stop you from doing what you know to be right. Yeah, Stay, staying true to your values again. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a bit Absolutely. of friction at times, but you have to. Wow. Yeah. God damn. It's pretty... It's a difficult task, I think, to do, to do it right um, in ways that don't, you know, because people have a tendency to take things personally. So mm. it is it is a bit difficult to achieve that very well. Um, but another part of, like, I suppose you got a lot of value out of, you know, staying true to that value and, you know, sticking by someone who was working for you. In that sense, uh, the people that you work with, you know, as a leader, you're providing a lot of opportunities, helping people grow and progress. What's your, what's 
the most like favorite part of that for you? Like, what do you enjoy most about doing that for people? Oh, look, I mean, for me, you know, the most important thing for me is to see people, you know, as I said, reach their potential. Um, you know, I think that I'm fortunate to work in an industry where there's a lot of really smart people. Um, you know, people bring, you know, a range of different skills and talents and things to this industry. And I think that, you know, we are as an industry and we probably don't appreciate it enough, but, you know, we really do shape the communities that we, we work within. Um, you know, we can do incredible things, you know, in terms of, you know, engineering capability. Um, so for me, it's a privilege to work in this industry. Um, but there's a lot of big challenges out there that, you know, we're still facing. And, um, you know, we're, we're very, um, you know, early days in, you know, playing a really active role in dealing with those things. So to me, what's the most gratifying thing, I guess, is that um, if I've got an opportunity to support somebody, either through sponsoring them or mentoring them or through providing them with, you know, development opportunities or exposing them to projects or to challenges and things like that to help them reach their potential in their career, then, you know, that that's really exciting for me. You know, I, I see some people in our business who, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of what they're capable of, you know, partly from a technical point of view, but, you know, also in terms of their interpersonal skills or their, their management capability, just the way that people, uh, you know, respond to what they say you know they you know inherent leadership qualities and things like that so for me it's really important to help them to succeed um you know and i think for me you know leadership for what it is it's, it's not about i guess sort of looking for the people who are going to sit that subordinate to you or whatever and to kind of be there as the loyal deputy or anything like that it's more a case of looking at the people around you and you know how do i you know help them to to elevate how do i help them to reach their potential and, and reach their you know ambitions in terms of their own career and support them in what they're trying to do so that you know the business overall benefits from that because you know they're engaged they're, they're certainly you know motivated in what they're trying to achieve you know they're bringing some incredible capabilities to to our business and helping us to you know to succeed um you know certainly again it helps in terms of trust that you know i'm, I'm kind of doing what i say i will in terms of supporting them in their career however that can happen and um you know to me you know, it's really important to me as well that, you know, whatever role I move to in future, I want to make sure that, you know, there's a bunch of talented people there who can step into that role and can kind of, you know, take the running and they can then take, you know, what I've done and they can build on that to do other things as well. So um, it's also about, you know, making sure that, you know, to me, it'd be arrogant of me to think that, you know, there's, you know, a kind of hole that would be left in the business if I stepped away tomorrow, you know, to me, the more important thing is, you know, who would fill that role and who would then take it to new places and to, um, you know, to help the business to continue to grow and, and making sure that there are people in the business who are ready to do that at that time. Mm. On that note, um, is there anything that you would say to yourself, to your younger self, uh, like an advice before getting into all of these, <laughs> what are the things that you would tell yourself? Oh, look, um, I'm not sure if the younger self would listen to anything that I would have to say, to be honest. Um, I was pretty pig-headed when I was young. Look, for me, I think, you know, the main things really are um, about understanding that, um, you know, people don't judge you as much as you think they will. You know, I think that sometimes mm. you're scared to make mistakes and I think certainly... In the early stages of my career, as I said, you know, that it was difficult to find a job in the industry at the time. So the last thing you wanted to do was to make a mistake and to potentially lose that job, you know. And I think that, 
you know, certainly something I need to know at that time was that, you know, confidence counts for a lot and that you, you know, you need to try. And sometimes you will learn more and you'll be better if you try and fail than if you don't try at all or if, um, if you just play it safe all the time. And certainly I think that's something that took me a while to learn, but certainly I think, you know, the willingness to sort of take yourself out of your comfort zone to try to fail sometimes because, you know, you can learn from failure and I don't think we should be scared of failure. Um, I just didn't appreciate that as much as I should have when I was young. Um, you know, I think it's difficult too because, you know, I was probably someone who, you know, was pretty hard on myself, like I wanted to continually improve. Um, you know, I could see that there were areas that I just wasn't as mature as I needed to be or things that didn't go as I intended. So I knew I had a lot to learn and that can put a lot of pressure on yourself and sometimes you beat yourself up over that. I think, again, it's sort of you need to go easy on yourself sometimes and celebrate the successes and the wins that you have rather than always concentrating on where you think things could have gone better. Um, and again, you know, as I said, it probably took me a while to realise that, you know, it's really by engaging with other people that's helped how you get better. And I probably, if I'd have understood that earlier, then, you know, maybe I would have, um, you know, being able to sort of be more um, impactful earlier on in my career. So, um, you know, really engaging with people, I think, as I said, you know, it's about building relationships, trusted relationships with people and, um, you know, really learning about yourself by interactions with them is really important. So probably took a while to appreciate that. Um, but once I did, I think that sort of put me in a position where, um, you know, I could really start to grow as an, as, as an individual. That's excellent. That's excellent <laughs> advice. I love that. <laughs> I love that you talked about having, you know, confidence to put yourself outside of your comfort zone because this is something I wanted to touch on earlier. Um, but, you know, you've, I suppose that sort of happened when you moved from construction to, you know, Ernst & Young and then, you know, back here now in this, um, in bg e Is there ever a point with, I guess, anything, whether it's the business side of things or you change in roles that you ever felt like, shit, I'm in the deep end now? Yes. Yeah. Oh, look, definitely. I mean, I think moving to Sydney, um, you know, I just finished working on a project called CityLink, which was, um, I, you know, for those who know Melbourne, it's essentially the Bolte yeah. Bridge, the viaduct section of the Tullamarine Freeway that was finished in the, you know, late 1990s. And um, I got tapped on the shoulder to move to Sydney to run, um, I think, what was sort of known at the time to be probably the least reliable concrete plant in Australia, um, you know, it was relatively new, but it was incredibly unreliable. And, um, you know, initially before I took the, the you know, the, made the move to Sydney, I assumed that the problems with that plant were all process issues and we had to get the process right. And once the process was fine, then the plant would be reliable. So I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about it from a process point of view. And, um, you know, it became pretty clear when I got to Sydney that the problems were actually people-related, you know, getting the right people in as part of the team, making sure they were motivated, um, you know, putting some structure in place to make sure that people were sort of working together in terms of maintenance and things like that to do the right things, getting supply chain issues sorted out. Um, you know, it was much more about managing the people and providing clear direction to, to deal with those issues than it was about the process itself. The process itself was almost irrelevant. And, you know, over time, you know, we managed to to resolve a lot of those issues you know I think that for me the challenge came after that because then as I said you know my role then moved to be looking after more and more concrete plants and um, the fact was that dealing with that particular plant in that intensive kind of way was you could do it for one plant you couldn't do it for five so the challenge then 
pretty quickly moved to trying to essentially take the same approach on a much larger scale with, you know, multiple different plants or, you know, trying to deal with these same issues concurrently. And it's just was completely the wrong approach. The, you know, the fact was that I could never sort of, um, you know, concentrate with that level of detail on five different plants at the same time to get the same outcomes. It was really going to be more a case of either delegating that to other people to do that or, or not trying to be so ambitious and just trying to do sort of limited things at a time and trying to keep that workload manageable. And the simple fact was I just didn't appreciate that at the time. You know, I, I thought that, well, if I just try hard enough and work hard enough, then I can make this work and, you know, we can succeed. But, you know, certainly there was some lack of self-awareness there at that time that the approach I was taking, because it had worked, you know, on, on, um, on one scale, it wasn't necessarily going to be working on a large, larger scale. So I think for me that was certainly a learning experience. Um, it was a pretty challenging one at the time because, you know, I felt like I you know, was letting myself down by not being able to have that same impact that I'd had previously. I certainly felt that, um, you know, the, the business itself had established some confidence in me and I was letting them down because, you know, what I was able to achieve at one plan, I wasn't able to achieve at others. So that was, that was a confronting period, you know, in terms of um, both learning about myself, um, but also, you know, how I would approach a situation like that differently in future. And certainly I think one of the lessons I got from that is that, you know, the things that made you successful to a particular point of time in your career aren't necessarily going to be the things that will make you successful from that point on. And that can be, I think, a particular challenge for engineers because often it's, you know, calculations and maths and problem solving that make us really, really good engineers and will get us to a particular point in time. But then when you're starting to manage people or you're starting to interact with clients more and, you know, it becomes much more about your management style rather than about your mm -hmm. engineering capability, that's a different skill set. And, um, you know, sometimes it's not made clear enough that, you know, there's a whole different skill set that you need to focus on developing. And you have to also resist the temptation to jump back into being an engineer every time something goes wrong and sort of pushing all the other engineers out of the way and solving the problems for them that, you know, as a manager, you need to delegate that to them and you then need to support them to help them to develop in the way that you mm -hmm. did. So, um, so for me, yeah, I think that that was, you know, probably a challenging point in my career, um, you know, certainly confronting one at the time. But again, you know, I think that they're the sorts of failures and the challenges that you can learn mm. from to sort of set yourself up better um, and help you to grow for the future. I, I'm curious about, because um, you come from a materials background and there's a lot of discussion about sustainability and how to achieve that and I wonder what you take is, is on sustainability coming from um, a materials background. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that cement is one of the, um, the challenges we have in the construction industry uh, when it comes to embodied carbon, when it comes to sustainability in general. I think that, um, you know, the fact is that there's not a lot of, you know, alternatives to the use of cement in concrete today at that scale at that price point, you know, the, the things that make, um, you know, cement essentially ubiquitous in the construction industry. And so for me, I guess part of, you know, my journey has been looking at alternatives. Um, you know, when I was a technical manager in Sydney, it happened to be at a time when um, we're looking at alternatives to cement to try to, you know, partly to reduce emissions, but also to, um, to reduce cost as well. And, um, So I don't want to get too technical here, but, you know, ground granulated blast furnace slag was, um, you know, a product that was starting to emerge in the Australian industry. So um, 
you know, initially we'd started to use that on a very small scale, um, but it was causing problems with the, um, the, the concrete places. The concrete wasn't setting as quickly as it would have if it was just cement and um, it was causing them problems the next day. So there was a pretty strong resistance to, to using that product. So we worked with them, um, you know, we engaged with them to try to understand what their issues were and um, ways that we could sort of compensate for, for the setting issues using admixtures and other ways to sort of deal with the problems that they had and lots of trialling and stuff to make sure we actually got it right so that it was actually performing as intended. And pretty quickly we were able to substitute about 50% of the cement we were using at the time with slag, That's which really is good. essentially a byproduct of steel production. So it's essentially using a, a recycled product as a substitute for cement, which was great. You know, I think that, you know, not only does that then mean that, you know, we're, we're using substantially less cement and, you know, cement is, as I said, you know, every tonne of cement, I think the total embodied um, carbon associated with the production, transportation and, and um, hydration of cement is almost two tonnes of, of carbon dioxide. Um, we we're also able to, um, you know, to produce concrete that's more durable as well. So slag is what we use in marine cements. It means it's much more durable around sort of coastal and saline environments. So there was a benefit of that as well, that we're actually not only get producing, um, you know, more environmentally friendly concrete, we're also producing it in a way that's going to make it more durable. So, you know, when we're starting to look forward, and I think things like adaptive reuse are becoming more of a conversation point in the sustainability space... Um, you know, it's going to be important that we've got, you know, existing concrete structures that are durable and can be reutilised um, for new structures over time. So for me, that's the opportunity that's starting to emerge now when we're looking at things like adaptive reuse, that, you know, the decisions made 20 odd years ago when we're looking at using this product will, uh, will benefit engineers in the future as we look at more and more opportunities for adaptive reuse. I mean, what I would say, though, is that I think as engineers in general, um, there's a much bigger role we can play, I think, in terms of, um, you know, dealing with the climate change issues, dealing with, I guess, the, um, you know, the the carbon intensity associated with construction today, um, you know, I guess taking, you know, a much more sustainable approach to how we build in future. So, um, you know, I think a lot of us got into engineering because we wanted to build the tallest buildings and the longest bridges. And, you know, now we're talking about 170 kilometre long cities in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, and I think that they're all fantastic in terms of, you know, the engineering achievement and the innovation associated with, with structures like that. You know, I guess the challenge for us as an engineering profession, though, is are they the challenges that the world needs us to face for the 21st century? You know, the things that really are important to the planet in terms of, um, you know, reducing carbon emissions, you know, controlling temperatures, adapting to climate change because it's now starting to happen, um, you know, do we focus on building the tallest tower or do we focus on actively dealing with those challenges being faced by, you know, communities around the world? Um, you know, mm. for me, I think that that's certainly uh, an area that we need to focus more on. We've had, you know, COP27 recently in Egypt and I think that, you know, they're starting to now be, um, you know, a focus on how we, we compensate, you know, poorer countries for, you know, the damage that's been caused by climate change yeah. that's predominantly been driven by the Western world. That's great, but, you know, there's going to be massive challenges with things like adaptation, for example. Like you look at countries like Bangladesh, you know, relatively small rises in sea levels are going to cause, you know, massive displacement for a country like Bangladesh in future. So um, 
how do we solve that problem? You know, what's the engineering required to deal with those sorts of challenges to, you know, to, to minimise the, the disruption caused to communities over the coming decades? And are we as a profession engaged enough in dealing with those things? So, you know, for me, part of that's materials. You know, it'd be great if we sort of could commercialise a product tomorrow that could completely replace cement. And there are some products out there. They're just not at that scale yet. Um, you know, equally how we reuse existing structure, you know, whether it be beams and columns or slabs or whatever, um, you know, in creative ways to extend the life of buildings, for example, um, so that we're not having to completely demolish and rebuild, you know, new structures in CBDs around the world. Um, you know, how we, um, you know, use existing infrastructure, you know, and extend the life of that as much as possible so that, um, you know, we're not having to, you know, replace bridges all the time or things like that, that we can actually get a longer life out of the existing infrastructure that's there. Now, they're all challenges that need to be faced. And, you know, to me, it's really important as an engineering profession that we really start to focus on dealing with those challenges. Just going to ask if that was something that, you know, you're looking forward to the most in this field. Yeah, look, yeah. I mean, for me, I think, um, like I said, I think engineering is at a really interesting point right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, I, you know, look at, say, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Like, I think that that's an incredible structure, you know, and I, I know some people that have worked on that project and, you know, it's, it's an amazing achievement to build a tower that's 828 metres tall. And, you know, there's been also, I guess, subsequent projects to build, you know, a kilometre tall tower in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, and uh, another tower in, in Dubai. Um, I guess the question I would have is that, you know, essentially the top 30% of the Burj Khalifa is essentially a mast. You know, it's not habitable. The top 200-odd metres is essentially there to add height. It's not there to provide any functional use. Um, you know, the, the way that structure's been designed is with a buttressed core. So, you know, an increasingly large proportion of the floor plate, you know, as you, as you taper down, you know, essentially towards the, the base of the building is, is taken up by the core. So it's not as if a structure that tall is providing substantially more floor space than other structures. In fact, there are, you know, there are other buildings around the world that have a lot more floor space than the Burj Khalifa has. So, so to me, in terms of utility, um, you know, I think that's where as an engineering profession, we need to question, is that where we invest the resources available to us you know we know that there's limited resources in engineering around the world so are they the challenges that we really want to be solving here you know to me i think what's really important is firstly we need to engage with the communities that we're part of and i think again you know coming back to the point around diversity we're much more likely to do that as an industry if we're actually you know involving a broader range of perspectives you know we're engaged with our local communities we've got engineers from those communities as part of the challenges that we're trying to solve and we're consulting with them, um, you know, on the solutions that we're proposing rather than just, you know, essentially implementing those solutions without any consideration of what that might mean for the local communities. So to me, again, I think diversity is a really important part of what we need to do to bring our industry to a point where we can take on those challenges and we can do it in a way that's going to really drive benefits to those communities. I mean, And the other point I'd make too is that, you know, engineering, I think, is essentially problem solving. So I think that we've always referred to engineers as kind of, you know, optimizers and problem solvers and that, you know, we're always about the elegant solution. And there's a kind of ideological purity that comes from that, which, you know, I don't want to disparage at all. But when I look at economics, which is a similar field to engineering in some ways, because that's always been very much about, um, you know, predictable models that will shape the way that we trade globally and the way that, you know, people will interact and drive behaviours. 
and you know this sort of assumption that we will move more and more towards you know open and free markets for, for goods and services a more globalized economy where people are trading between countries more and more so to the point where eventually there will be one global market rather than having sort of you know localized markets that's fine you know at a conceptual level but what we're finding is that for example you know if you're you know transitioning away from coal to renewables then you're leaving you know towns with essentially no jobs that we you know were dependent on on coal um so they they lose out and you know there's kind of a, a sense of a trade-off between the few people that would lose their jobs and the, the you know the people who would gain a lot more from that transition you know we're seeing you know countries around the world where um you know as they become um you know more influential in terms of say energy then you know then you have geopolitical factors that come into play then you know such as russia with with gas for example supplying gas to europe so you know the way that economics has played out in reality is different to how it's played out conceptually because these other dynamics become increasingly important um over time so i think for engineering we've got a lesson to learn from that that um we can't just be thinking about problem solving to the exclusion of all other objectives you know we need to be thinking about um you know from a community point of view in terms of you know other factors around governance for example um you know ESG for example um engagement with indigenous people you know there's a range of different considerations we need to have there that need to feed into those decisions that we do make and so we need to move away from that kind of ideological purity that engineering might have been and start to think much more about you know how we remain you know truly engaged with the communities that we're a part of and also you know getting again a diverse range of perspectives you know to help us make those decisions in a much more informed way so i think that's challenging for engineers sometimes and i certainly find that too that you know when i talk to marketers it feels like they're talking a different language to me sometimes but at the same time we need to have you know those different opinions in there we need to be open to that to help us make better decisions and to focus what we do as engineers to help really solve some of those those global challenges just in line with that do you think that's something that kind of needs to be introduced sort of um on a educational level like when people are learning engineering they need to introduce a more holistic sort of thinking so yeah and i think that that's that's to me is the most important thing really that ultimately you know i think engineering has a kind of social license we're here to benefit the community you know as other professions do so it's important what we do is you know wholly focused on solving the challenges out there for the communities that we we operate in so for me again it's about looking at well what are the challenges in the coming decades that we need to face and how do we play you know a leadership role in helping to deal with those challenges so you're right i mean i think for me that might mean that yeah it's less about the you know the space race in terms of you know the tallest buildings or anything like that and potentially more about you know how we actually provide better benefits to the community and i'm not saying that's not happening i think it is already starting to happen and certainly yeah. i think um you know the the rhetoric around engineering in certainly in some firms is much more about you know that sort of interaction with um with the places that we live and work in you know the communities that we operate within and taking you know much more of a holistic view but you know i guess to your point so hand around you know what we need to be teaching engineers i mean i would like to think that engineering today the way it's being sort of taught in universities would be different to how it was when i was being taught engineering 30 years ago i would hope that there is more of a holistic view being taken it's not just all about you know maths and physics or whatever um but to say that that um isn't important to engineering but obviously we all need to make sure that there's also a sense of engineering's place in our communities so you know i think the 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 challenge i also see though is how we 
can take potentially some of those more holistic challenges and use that as a way to attract people into engineering in the first place. Because again, you know, we're just not seeing enough people considering engineer as a profession that they want to be a part of, um, you know, particularly women. Um, but I think that typically speaking, it's been, you know, sort of a, a very heavy focus on students who are very good at maths and science as being, you know, the primary candidates to do engineering. Um, but, you know, I think that, again, you know, we need to have the capability within our profession to be able to engage with other, um, you know, perspectives and other ways of thinking out there as well. And mm -hmm. that's going to be well beyond that kind of maths and science paradigm. I think we never got to ask you, what got you into engineering now that we're talking about <laughs> all this? Because it's like the way you speak and everything that you have shared with us, it's really interesting. Um, to be honest, I think it was probably exactly what I said before in that um, I was pretty good at maths and science, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm, I'm not a good example of what I'm professing here, but um, I always did well in maths and science at school and um, I didn't know what I wanted to be uh, really when I was in high school. Um, I didn't know any engineers. I didn't have any engineers in my family or anything like that at all. I probably didn't really understand what engineering was beyond a really conceptual level. Um, but I did know that engineering was one of those degrees that was good for people who are good at maths and science um, and also was quite a versatile degree as well. So you could go into a range of different sort of fields if you studied engineering. So that attracted me because, you know, I saw that as kind of a good fit for what I did and I also saw that the problem solving inherent in engineering, you know, I like solving problems, I like solving mysteries, I kind of liked that aspect of it as well. Um, you know, beyond that too, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to, to go to university. I didn't really have an appreciation for what that meant. You know, again, I moved from a country town to Melbourne to go to university, so away from my local community. So that was kind of a leap into the unknown. Um, you know, I think that um, it was also about, um, you know, essentially going into a, a new world. Like I, I sort of saw more for myself than sort of living in a small country town. Um, you know, I kind of felt kind of constrained, I guess, in a way, um, you know, kind of living in a country town. I didn't really feel like I was at home in that environment. I, I saw living in a city as something that was much more appealing to me. So certainly going to university was an important part of that for me because, you know, I saw that that would open up opportunities for me in terms of career opportunities, but would also, you know, take me into an environment where I felt like I'd be much more at home. So, um, so yeah, really, it came down to maths and science, but, you know, the main motivator really was to, to get to the big smoke. Yeah. Um, was there any point in which you realized how much of an impact that, for a community you could have, like any particular project or that sort of like shifted, or shifted the way you thought about engineering as a whole? Look, I think, again, you know, I went into engineering probably similar sorts of motivations, a lot of other people, you know, wanted to work on exciting big projects, wanted to... Mm. Um, you know, kind of be able to point to something and say, oh, you know, I built that or whatever. Um, the reality, I think, is very different. I remember, you know, in terms of that point you're talking about, it was probably almost the reverse that happened, that I was working on CityLink at the time and one of the site engineers on that project, um, you know, his only role on the project was to essentially set up and pour the concrete for the, the concrete parapets, you know, on the on-ramps and off-ramps all the way along the viaduct. So, you know, every day he would have, you know, essentially the, the forms that they would use and he would move it to the new location with the steel set up and everything and they would pour the parapets. And he did that for about three years, you know, and basically that's what his role was, you know, just essentially the parapets. And, you know, 
it was the most boring job he'd ever done. You know, he hated it. You know, he thought that, you know, after about a week, you know, there was nothing he was learning from it anymore. You know, you know, pointing to a viaduct and saying, well, I didn't build the viaduct, but I built the parapets on the sides of the on-ramps and off-ramps. That didn't really appeal to him either in terms mm. of being able to, to boast about, you know, his role on the project. And for me, that was probably... Yeah, and, and for me, that was probably the thing that, you know, the more significant the project is, you know, the less significant your role on that project is likely to be. So it's almost like a kind of a false mm. promise in a sense that... You know, it's great to be a part of a project like that, but the reality is that your direct contribution is going to be very small kind of at that stage in my career anyway. So um, so for me, it probably then became more about, as I said, you know, I was working in construction materials. You know, there was a push towards using products other than cement and to be, um, you know, looking at, um, you know, how we can, you know, take what was seen as a, a problematic part of the construction industry and making it more environmentally sustainable um, that was certainly a factor. Um, but the other thing too is that, you know, when you're working in construction materials, you know, often, you know, it's about quarries, it's about concrete and cement plants, it's about, um, you know, large things that can have big impacts on the local community. So you need to have good engagement with communities as well to mm. make sure that they allow you to operate. So there was always a really strong ethos that, you know, we need to be trusted by the communities that we're a part of. You know, essentially, we're there to provide them with jobs, but equally, they're, they're also there to provide us, I guess, with the licence to allow us to do what we do. So certainly that sense of engaging with the community, you know, very much came from, um, you know, from those days. And equally, I saw the flip side of that too, where, you know, there was a proposed facility to be built at Werribee near Melbourne. Um, the community there was completely opposed to it. So, you know, the first time I drove into that town and there were signs basically telling us to get out or whatever, yeah. um, that was pretty confronting too. So, you know, certainly all those things, I think, certainly sort of taught me that engaging with communities and being a part of those communities is really important. It was key. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much. doesn't feel like it's, it's been an, an hour and a half. It's been a really, uh, really enjoyable <laughs> I conversation. Wish, like, this inter- it's so in. So frustrating, I have to say, because there's so many interesting things that we would like to just keep asking exactly. and just keep talking. But it's so hard for people to just, like, you know, stay tuned at the same time. Feel free to cut out all the boring bits. No, no, no nothing's no, been boring. It's, it's been it's so diverse and break. so interesting. Yeah. It's actually the hardest bit, editing it, because there's so many things that are so interesting and everything just... It's really cool to hear their stories and the diversity of where people come from and what yeah. they do and how they take, like the, the view on the on the world is incredibly interesting. And we haven't even asked you where you're from, what little town you're from. <laughs> I want to know all of that. <laughs> well, um, well, it's from well, a few different towns, but yeah, Shepparton was the last town I lived in, so it's not that small, but it's um. Yeah, I was glad. Where is that located? Uh, it's about two hours north of Melbourne. So it's where a lot of fruit is grown in that area. So, yeah, between engineering and fruit, I'm, I'm glad I chose engineering. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming here and joining us. Yeah, it's been time. my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for yeah, having me on. Your time, especially for your time. <laughs> and Thank you so much. I remember when we talked about this and he was like, no, it would really be good for me to get out of my comfort zone. <laughs> so I'm really happy so that you yeah. <laughs> Oh, look, yeah. and, you know, for me, you know, again, you guys, you know, the audience you have, the reach you have, you know, I think that 
um, you know, I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing. So, you know, anything I can do to be supportive of that is, is you know, you the least I can do, really. You have been quite supportive. Thank you so much, honestly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. Mm-hmm.